All right, we'll let you guys have a seat. Um, as our host team is collecting our offering, there's a couple things I just want to mention uh, this morning before we get going in the message. And the first of those things is Easter. We, uh, in, in a few weeks, we have six identical Easter services coming up on Saturday, March the 30th, and Sunday, March the 31st. Um, you can see the times there, 4, 5.30, and 7 on that Saturday, and then our regular service times on Sunday morning. And so a, a couple things about this. If you're a regular attender, I want to ask you to consider possibly coming to a service on Saturday to free up guests, and, or to free up room for guests and new families. Um, I also want to ask you to consider, if you're not already plugged into serving here at Westridge, to serve that weekend. It's a great time to get started serving here at Westridge on Easter because, man, six services, double the services, we need double the people to serve. So if you can do that and help us and, uh, and get engaged and take that step, visit our help center before you go, and we'd love to help you do that. It's to your right, my left, under the overhang there. Uh, one last thing, we're doing baptism at all of our Easter services. So if you've never gone public with your faith through baptism, what an awesome weekend to do it, right? As we talk about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and baptism is a picture of that. And so I want to invite you, if you've never done that, to take part in it Easter weekend. Um, again, you can visit our help center before you go to sign up or you can go to westridge.com slash baptism. And one last thing, parents, if you have an elementary age student who's interested in being baptized on Easter weekend. Uh, next Sunday, right after our 1159 service, we have a splash class, which is our class geared toward elementary age kids that talks about salvation and baptism. So we just want to help you. We want to partner with you to help get your kid ready for baptism. So you can sign up before you leave today, again, at the Help Center, or talk to Christy or Emily, one of our children's directors, and they can help you out and and uh, you can come be a part of that, all right? Um, last thing, then we're going to jump in, Rush. We have a student camp coming up in June. And the reason, I'm sorry, in May, it's usually in June, but we're doing it early this year, May 27th through 31st. It's in Daytona Beach. Cost is 375 bucks. The reason I'm mentioning it now is because registration opened about a week and a half ago. And uh, if you want to register, you need to do so before the end of March because the deadline's coming. And if you're a parent of a high schooler or a middle schooler or you're a student in the room, I just want to say, if, if your kid's not already connected, this is a great way to get them connected to the student ministry here at Westridge Church in Cartersville. An amazing, amazing camp experience, and I promise your student will walk away forever changed. So if you want more info on what that looks like or maybe uh, what some of our scholarship funds look like, talk to Devin, our student pastor who was up here earlier, and he can help answer all your questions, all right? Cool. Well, let's do this. Let's grab our Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And today we're continuing on in our Here to There series. If you haven't been around over the last several weeks, uh, we've been in this study on the last week of Jesus' life here on the earth before he went to the cross and, uh, and rose from the dead. And so far we've covered Sunday, we've covered Monday, we've covered Tuesday. Today in week four we're going to be talking about one of the things that happened on Wednesday during the last week of Jesus' life. So to help us get going, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen someone who you thought of as a bully get put in their place by another person? Have you ever witnessed that? Like, I know that, uh, I know that right now on YouTube, like, this is kind of a, a popular genre of video, like the bullies, you know, kind of one-punch KO, getting knocked out, getting destroyed. When I was in middle school, I actually saw this happen firsthand, okay? I was a bus rider 
rode the bus to and from school. And I remember coming home one day, uh, there was this kid on the bus named Clint, and he lived in my neighborhood. And Clint was kind of that bully kid, right? He, he talked a big game. He kind of talked down to other people. He was kind of prideful, arrogant. And he was picking on this kid on the bus whose name was Jason. And uh, Jason and Clint, they were kind of sitting across the aisle from one another in these bus seats. I was sitting right behind Jason, and Clint's over here just letting Jason have it, man. You're garbage. You're a piece of trash. He's just picking on him and talking down to him. And I'm sitting behind Jason going, Jason, hit him, right? Like, hit him. Now, I'm not condoning punching anybody in the face any longer. When I was in middle school, I mean... We used to get in fights all the time. Somebody's picking on you. Somebody's acting like a jerk. You, you fight them. And so I'm sitting here telling Jason, dude, you need to hit him. Shut him up. Do not let him talk to you like that. And Clint, man, he's just going and going and going. And I'm saying, hit him, hit him, hit him. And finally, I'll never forget, Jason stands up out of his seat and out of nowhere, just boom, hits Clint right in the nose. I mean, his nose busted everywhere, blood everywhere. The kid's crying. He's screaming. He's kicking his feet. The bus driver, he knows Clint's a jerk, so he doesn't even do anything, right? He's like <laughs> just driving, not even paying attention. It was incredible, right? And I just remember Jason, he quietly sat back down, and everyone on the bus was like cheering and applauding because they felt like this other kid who was this bully, he finally got what he deserved, Right? Well, in the passage we're looking at today from Matthew 23, we find Jesus doing something similar to what I just described. Like, he doesn't punch anyone in the face, but he does confront um, these religious bullies that are self-centered, arrogant, and tend to lord themselves over common, ordinary people. And Jesus decides on Wednesday of his last week of his life. He's going to confront these men, and he's going to do it in front of the very people that they treat so poorly. So with that in mind, I want us to pick up, and we're going to start reading in Matthew 23, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible or a device with an app on it, you can feel free to follow along here on the screens. Here's what the Bible tells us. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Now, I want to stop there for a minute and just kind of paint this scene for us, all right? I want you to imagine Jesus. He's standing in between two crowds of people, and on one side of him are these religious bully guys, these Pharisees, and on the other side of him are these common, ordinary Jewish people who these religious men tend to pick on and lord over, okay? And I just imagine, as I, as I read this this past week, I just imagine Jesus with his back to the Pharisees, talking to these ordinary people, saying, hey, guys, these men behind me, the Pharisees, um, they sit on Moses' seat. In other words, these guys are the spiritual leaders of your day. I mean, they hold spiritual authority when it comes to the scriptures. These guys are the best of best at rule following and morality. So since they're in that kind of spiritual position, you need to do the things that they're teaching you to do as it concerns the scriptures and the commands of God, but then Jesus says something really interesting. He goes, do what, they, or do what they say, but don't do what they do. Like, do what they teach you to do, but don't actually do the works that they do. And why? Well, it's right there, right? Why? Because they preach, but they do not practice. Now, we have a term that we still use to this day for people who love to preach at other people, but fail to practice what it is they're preaching. And what are those people called? 
hypocrites, right? See, you guys are smart people. I don't even have to tell you. You're preaching my message for me. They're called hypocrites, people who talk a lot and tell other people what they should be doing without doing those things themselves. Those people are hypocrites. So that person in your life who loves to tell you that you should lose weight while they're eating a big bowl of ice cream, that person's a hypocrite, right? Um, that parent that you know who always tells you you should do a better job of disciplining your kids while their kids act like spawns of Satan, person's a hypocrite. Um, your boss at work who tells you to work hard and you need to do a better job and they're sitting there playing solitaire or temple run on their computer or the phone all day, person's a hypocrite. We get the idea, right? Well, in the next set of, of, uh, of scriptures, Jesus starts telling these common ordinary people exactly why he thinks the Pharisees are hypocrites, exactly why he sees them as men who don't practice what they preach. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see, during the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were famous for not only teaching people to follow all of God's commands found in the Old Testament law, but they were also famous for making up other rules, man-made rules, and then putting those rules on top of people and not being very hard on themselves about those rules they created for others. Like, I'll give you a couple of examples, okay? The Pharisees had this rule um, that no one should look in a mirror on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was considered to be a holy day. You didn't do any work on the Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees said, if you look in a mirror on the Sabbath day, you could see a gray hair in, in your head, and you could pluck that hair out. And if you pluck that hair out, then you're guilty of doing work, and work is a sin, and you're a sinner. So don't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day, right? Um, they had another rule, and this one's even more ridiculous. They told people, don't eat eggs that were laid on the Sabbath day by chickens. I'm serious. And what they said is this. They said, that chicken, since that chicken did work on the Sabbath to lay that egg, if you eat that egg, you're guilty by association because you're condoning work. And because you're condoning work, you're a filthy sinner because you ate an egg. Like, it's insane, right? So the Pharisees, they would make all of these man-made rules. They would give them to people. And then they would be much harder on other people about those, those rules that they were on themselves. They were men who loved to preach and to tell everybody else what to do, but they failed to practice a lot of things themselves. And then Jesus keeps going. And again, just picture it. Pharisees to his back, crowd in the front, and he says, these men behind me, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Every single bit of what they do, it's a show, it's fake. They just love other people's approval. And he said they make their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries during this time, they were leather boxes that contained scripture. And uh, a religious person would have tied those boxes around either their forehead or their arm. Thank God we don't do that anymore, right? And the Pharisees were known for making their boxes, their phylacteries huge so that when they walked around, people would notice and go, wow, those are some pretty holy guys. They must love God a lot. Jesus says they make their fringes long. Um, during the time of Jesus, men had fringes or tassels coming off certain parts of their clothing. And these tassels were supposed to remind people to love God, obey God, and to pursue holiness. And so people said, or Jesus said that the Pharisees, these guys, they love to make their fringes extra long so that people would take notice and go, those guys must really be holy. They must really love to obey God a lot. He goes on. He says they love the place of honor at feasts. So they'd show up to meals and they would immediately go for the best seats. You know those people, don't you, who like, you walk in a room and they run to the front or the head of the table. Jesus goes, the Pharisees are those guys. Why? 
because the best seats were always associated with position, power, and authority. He said they loved to go to the marketplace and they loved to be called rabbi by others. That term rabbi meant my great one. So you can imagine the Pharisees on certain days, they didn't need anything from the market. They didn't want to buy anything. They just walked around so they could hear other people calling them their great one. Jesus is going, man, all of this is for show. It's fake. They're pretenders. They're preaching, but they're not practicing. Jesus continues to go on. If you read this, and he tells this group of ordinary people, don't call these guys your spiritual fathers anymore. Don't call these guys your spiritual instructors anymore. Why? Because Jesus knew as long as these common people kept calling these religious men those words, those titles, it would just result in these guys becoming more prideful than they already were. So Jesus, I mean, he's calling these guys out. Can you imagine being one of these Pharisees? Like, have you ever had somebody talk about you to somebody else, and you were in the room, but they acted like you weren't even in the room? You ever had somebody do that? And you're like, dude, I'm standing right next to you, bro. Like, do you not know I'm here? I can imagine that's how the Pharisees had to feel. I'm sure that some of them were offended. Some of them were embarrassed. For three years of his ministry, Jesus had walked around calling these guys out. And now he calls them out in front of a group of people who used to respect them. And he does it in front of them. So I can only imagine how these men must have felt. Now, it gets worse for these guys, though. And I I love to picture stories as I'm reading and just kind of think about how it might have gone. And so I almost picture the story like this. I picture Jesus as he's telling these common people all about the the Pharisees. I imagine at some point Jesus went, you know what, let me just tell them myself. And so he kind of spins around, and in the next set of verses, and I'll let you read a lot of these on your own, he looks the Pharisees in the face, and he starts calling them hypocrites to their faces, And he doesn't just leave it at, you guys are hypocrites. He tells them exactly why he thinks they're hypocrites. Seven times he makes very strong, very straightforward, very aggressive, you guys are hypocrites statements. And uh, for the sake of time this morning, we won't walk through every single one of those. But I just want to give you two big truths that all these statements point to, all right? What do we learn from Jesus? Here's what we learn. The first thing is this, that religion doesn't save Jesus is going after these guys. You guys are hypocrites, and here's why he wants them to understand, and he wants us to understand today that religion doesn't save anyone. Um, I I remember a couple years ago being on a mission trip down in Nicaragua with our students from our other location, our east location down in Paulding County, and I remember part of our trip was going door to door and doing evangelism. So we'd knock on a family's door. We'd have a gift for them. Um, They would invite us into their home, and we'd strike up a conversation, and we'd talk about Jesus. And one of the questions we would ask uh, went something like this. We would say, why should God love you, accept you, forgive all your sins, and ultimately one day welcome you into heaven, into his kingdom? The overwhelming response as we walk through these villages in Nicaragua were this. People would say, well, I'm basically a good person. Um, I do good things. I don't break rules. I try to be nice to my neighbors. I go to church every once in a while. And so... Um, that's why I think God should love me, accept me, and, and let me into heaven one day. Those responses point to what I mean when I use the word religion. You see, religion is us as people attempting to earn God's grace, his love, his forgiveness, his eternal life through being good people and doing good things. That's what religion is. Now, there's a problem with this belief, with this mindset, okay? It's built on a very unbiblical assumption, and here's the assumption. 
religion, this belief that I can make God love me and I can make God accept me through being a good person and doing, doing good things. It's built on this idea that inherently we are all good people who just do bad things, right? And so the belief is this, because we're good people who do bad things, as long as we'll do enough good things to outweigh all the bad things at the end of our life, God will see that and he'll accept us and take us in and everything will be okay. Now, the problem with that religious mindset is this. It's this book, because the Bible teaches us we're not good people. The Bible teaches us that all of us in there, we're bad people. We are bad people who do bad things. We are sinful people who do sinful things. And it doesn't matter how many good things we try and do while we're here on the earth, that all the good things we do can never make up for all the bad things we've done and how bad we truly are as people. And so listen, when Jesus rips these Pharisees, he's trying to get them to understand that. One of the statements he makes to them goes something like this. He says, you guys are hypocrites. You don't practice what you preach. You're shutting the door to the kingdom of God in people's faces. I mean, this is strong, and it gets worse, okay? Um, The Pharisees, again, one of the things that made them so arrogant was this belief that they could work really hard and make God love them. And so they walked around feeling good about how churchy they were, about how many Bible verses they knew, about how many rules they could follow. They were so prideful because they're looking around going, we're so much better than everybody else, and we're good enough to make God love us. And Jesus responds by going, no, you're not. And because you believe that, you're putting yourself on a pathway that's going to take you straight to hell. And everybody that's buying into what you're selling them is going to hell with you. Like, these are the words of Jesus. And why is he so strong and direct with these guys? Well, it's simple. Why? Because he wants them to understand that religion doesn't save. He wants them to understand that they can't be good enough to earn God's acceptance. Now, the next one. If you're taking notes, write this down. I like this next one. Some of you guys will like this next one as well. Um, Jesus lets us know in these set of verses, in these woe statements, these hypocrite statements, that he isn't a fan of hypocrites. People who preach but don't practice. Like, Jesus isn't a fan of these types of people. Now, for some of us in the room, like, this is encouraging for you, isn't it? Like, I would just assume, maybe there's somebody in the room today that you're in church for the first time ever. And the reason you've stayed away from church for so long is because when you think church and when you think Christians, the first thing that pops in your mind is hypocrite, right? Like, if we had flashcards today and one of them said Christian, and I said, say the first thing that comes to mind, we'd flip it over and you go, hypocrite, immediately, right? And so you're here because your family member bugged you enough or your neighbor wouldn't shut up about Westridge and you came But even this morning as you're getting ready, you're like, awesome, get to go hang out with a bunch of hypocrites for the next hour, right? Like you considered wearing your I'm with the hypocrite shirt with the arrow on it, pointing to the seat next to you. Thank you for not. But listen to me, like I get it. This should be encouraging for you, for others of us that walked away from church a long time ago and we're just now coming back. And the reason we walked away from church is because we were a part of something in which we looked around at other people who said they loved Jesus and that they loved God, that they knew him, but their lives didn't match up with their mouths and it frustrated us and it didn't push us closer to God, it pushed us further from him. Like when we walked away from church because we were so frustrated at hypocritical people and again, now you're back and you're trying to figure this thing out. Here's what I want you to hear. Hypocritical people frustrate Jesus more than they frustrate you. And you should take joy and encouragement in knowing that, right? How do I know that? Um, Let's go back to some of these statements. Jesus, one of the things he says to these Pharisees 
in Matthew 23. And again, make sure you read these statements on your own this week, okay? One of the things he says to them, he says, you guys minor on major issues, but you pay no attention to things that actually matter. So he says, you guys get all your tithe right. You bring all the right gifts and offerings to God, but you don't love justice or mercy or true faithfulness to God. Like you put all this stock in a small thing, but these big things you don't pay any attention to. And then he says again, you guys are hypocrites. You don't practice what you preach. He says, you guys are like dirty cups and plates that might look really good on the outside. You, you ever picked up a coffee cup before and it looked all clean on the outside and you looked in it and you're getting ready to fill it up and you realize you hadn't washed that thing in about three weeks? Jesus says, Pharisees, you, you're like that. You're like a dirty cup on the inside. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of just things that are absolutely disgusting. He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You ever been to a, a cemetery and seen like a brand new uh, gravestone put in and it's beautiful and it looks awesome and it's all shiny and glossy. Jesus goes, that's what you guys are like, Pharisees. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death and you're full of evil. He's saying to them, you're saying all the right things, you're doing all the right churchy stuff, you're practicing morality, you're doing all the rule thing right, but on the inside you're evil, you're sinful, and your hearts are very far from God. You don't love him at all. Like you're doing these things not to attract people to him, you're doing these things to attract people to you, and you're evil because of it. I mean, these are strong, strong words from Jesus. Now, I think it's easy for some of us, and it doesn't matter if we grew up in church or we're brand new to church, I think it's easy for some of us to feel so vindicated by Jesus' words in this passage, isn't it? Like some of you guys probably right now, you have somebody in your mind that you're thinking about that fits this bill of hypocritical or religious, and you're just wishing, man, that Jesus would show up in the flesh today at your house so you could take him with you to their house and he could give them the same spill that he gave the Pharisees in Matthew 23, right? Um, but here's what I want to say to you. Don't feel so vindicated by Jesus calling these men out that you miss what he was trying to do in this passage. You see, here's the deal. Jesus wasn't rebuking these men just to rebuke them. He wasn't getting angry at these men just to get angry at them. Listen, he was direct and straightforward because he wanted to move these men's hearts. See, the Bible tells us, man, in places like 1 Peter 3, 9, I'm sorry, sorry, 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4, that our God is a God who wants all people to repent and to place their faith in him as Savior, right? Listen, listen, don't miss this. That includes religious, hypocritical people. As hard as that is for some of us to hear, God wants those people at that church you left to come to repentance and to repent of hypocrisy and to repent of religion and pride, and he wants their life. He wants them. For those of you that think of those people, like, that's why I haven't come to church, I want you to know that God wants to move that person's heart to a place of repentance, just like he wants to move the heart of the worst sinner in this world to repentance. God wants those people. And so for those of us in here that feel vindicated, yes, Jesus called out the, the, the religious hypocrites. Don't feel so vindicated that you miss out on praying for those people. Don't feel so vindicated that you pull yourself completely out of their lives and you can't have any voice into speaking into how they're living and what they're believing. God wants those people to come to repentance. Now for others of us in the room, let me say this. For those that are here that are offended by the words of Jesus this morning, 
And I'm just making an assumption, okay, because I don't know a lot of you uh, in the room, so this is all assumption. I'm just assuming, though, in a room of this many people, maybe there's one or two of us in here that might fit that description of religious or hypocritical, right? Like maybe there's someone in here who you show up to church and you're really like, you know, I don't really know Jesus and I don't think I really need him. I'm a good person. I came to church. I do some good stuff. God should love me for who I am and that's enough. Um, That's religion, right? If you're the hypocrite person who you talk about Jesus and I love Jesus and I want to live the life he's called me to live, but your life doesn't match up with your mouth, I think it's easy for some of us in the room who might fit that bill and I've fit that bill in the past in my life. I think it's easy for those of us who fit that bill to possibly be so offended by the words of Jesus that we tune out the rest of what I'm about to say and we walk out of here the same person as we walked in. And listen, I'm just pleading with all of you, with both groups, do not miss what Jesus was trying to do in this passage. He wanted to move men from pride and arrogance to humility. He wanted to move men from self-centeredness to faithfulness to God. He wanted to move men who thought they could be good enough for God to a place of brokenness where they called on God for salvation. And I believe he wants to do the same thing for some of us in the room today, and he wants to use some of us in the room to help others find their way back to God in true repentance. So don't miss out on this, okay? How do we accomplish those things that I just mentioned? Well, I'm gonna give you two things, okay? What do we need to know? What do we need to do if we're gonna be those people who not only preach, but we actually practice? Here's what we need to know. First thing is that Jesus saves. First thing we need to know is that Jesus saves. And listen to me, if you're a church person, I want you to know that what I'm about to say is not only for people in the room who don't know Jesus, this is for you as well. So don't check out, okay? The good news that Jesus saves needs to be something that you set your mind on every day because if you forget this and you start believing your salvation is somehow dependent on you, God's gonna become nothing to you, right? Your heart's gonna drift from him. So don't miss this. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. That this is not our own doing. It is what? It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul tells us what we've already said this morning. Religion doesn't save. That we can't make ourselves acceptable to God through being good people and trying to do good things. Instead, there's only one person that can save us. And who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can save us. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he lived a perfect life for us. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he died a death that we deserved on a hellish cross so that our sins could be forgiven by God. Jesus rose from the dead three days later to defeat sin and death and hell on our behalf so that we could know God and know eternal life. Jesus did all of that for us. So guess what, church? That's good news. You know why it's good news? Because there's nothing left for us to do. Isn't that awesome? Like if we want salvation and if we want acceptance and we want forgiveness and we want to be loved by God, you know what we have to do? We just have to come to God and say, God, I want that gift. I realize I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to follow a bunch of rules first. I don't have to fix what's wrong in my life. God, you've done everything that needed to happen for me. You've done it for me. And so, God, I want to come and I want to receive that gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I want to know you. I want to be loved by you. I want eternal life with you. Isn't that awesome? And the reason that God did it this way, the reason God didn't look at us as sinful people and say, hey, guys, figure it out, try to be good, and we'll see how it goes at the end of your life. Simple. You want to know why? 
One, because he knew we couldn't make up for all the bad, but there's another reason, too, is so that none of us would boast. You know the Pharisees' problem? Again, they walked around talking about how awesome they were because they thought they were good enough for God. When you realize that you're not good enough for God, but that he's done something for you in Jesus that you could never do for yourself, guess what you'll do? You won't boast about you. You'll spend your entire life boasting and bragging about how awesome God is. And that's his heart, man. That's his desire. So we got to remember that Jesus saves first and foremost. And second thing is this. Some of us, we need to quit performing and we need to give God our hearts. If we want to be people who truly practice what it is that we're preaching, truly living out the life God calls us to live, we have to quit performing and we have to give God our hearts. Let me explain this, okay? I've told you guys several times, as a kid who grew up in church, and uh, as a kid who grew up in church, I came to know Christ at 14, and um, a, a lot of my problem in my young Christian life was this. Like, I, I believed, some of you guys are gonna get this, I believed that God loved me enough to send Jesus to die for me so I didn't have to go to hell, but I wasn't really convinced that God actually liked me. You know what I'm talking about? And so, like, I remember hearing, God loves you, Jesus died for you, you don't wanna go to hell, do you? No, I don't wanna go to hell. And so, 14, I pray with my dad, and I ask God to save me, I don't wanna go to hell. But from 14 on, I spent a lot of the years of my young Christian life trying to perform in such a way that made God actually like me, love me, and accept me. Like, I thought that was my job. So listen, I would go to church, I would read my Bible some, I would pray, I would lift my hands in worship, I would do all of these things, not because I actually loved God, I did those things because I was trying to make God love me. What I didn't understand is that he already did. You see, I didn't get how much God loved me. I didn't understand as a young Christian for a while that at the moment, at 14 years old, that I placed my faith in Jesus as my Savior, that I was fully loved and accepted by God forever. I didn't understand that every single one of my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven in Jesus, which means when Jesus went to the cross for James, he knew what a screw-up I'd be, and he died for every single one of my sins I'd commit from the first breath of my life to the last. Like, I didn't get when I prayed that prayer at 14 that there was nothing I would ever do in life that could make God love me more or make me love or make him love me less. Like, I didn't get it. So I fell into this performance trap of, thank you, God, for not letting me go to hell. Um, Now I'm going to work really hard to prove myself to you. Listen to me. This is going to free some of you up. You have nothing to prove to God. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have nothing to prove to God. You see, God, he does not want your actions if he does not have your heart. God wants you to do all the things I mentioned earlier. He wants you to come and to worship and to be with other believers and to read your Bible and to pray and to give and to love on the community. Not because you're out to prove something to him. He wants you to do it out of love for him. And the way that you love him is by understanding just how much you're loved by him. I love this quote in this book I'm reading right now. It's by a guy named Herman Bavink. He said this. He said, God gave himself to his people in order that his people should give themselves to him. How good is that? You see, when we fix our minds every day on this amazing amazing truth that God truly gave us himself, and he gave us himself so that we could know him and know life, and he did it for us when he knew we could never do it for ourselves. You know what will happen? Like when we believe that, 
we'll actually start loving God all the more. We'll love God with our whole hearts like we talked about last week. Soul, mind, strength, with energy, with intensity, with a genuineness and sincerity. And when you love God because you understand how much you're loved by God, guess what you'll do? You'll live in faithfulness to him. You'll live in obedience to him. You'll do the things he's asked you to do. And they won't feel like a burden so more, man. You'll love to do it. And why? Because you love him. You actually love him. I've asked Matt um, and Eric to close us with a song today. And and the song's just a simple prayer. You're not gonna know it, most of you probably. It's a brand new song off the latest Passion CD. And uh, it's called Here's My Heart. And it's just a simple prayer. It's a simple cry uh, from us as God's people to just say, God, here I am, every single bit of me. I want you to have my heart. God, I don't wanna perform for you anymore. I don't wanna fall into this trap of believing, God, that I've gotta do something to help Jesus out when it comes to you accepting me. I just wanna love you. I just wanna give you my life. I just wanna give you my heart because I believe I'm loved by you. And so a couple things. If you know Jesus, I just want you to use this time to just pray basically the words of this song and to truly ask God to set you free from, um, from that performance trap, to ask God to give you true love for him. Ask God during this time just to remind you every single day of how much he loves you and remember how much he loves you by fixing your mind on Jesus. For those of us in the room who may not know Jesus, uh, I wanna give you the opportunity to give him your heart today for the very first time. So I just wanna ask you, if you will, just to join me. Let's pray together.